0: Hey, folks. Welcome back to the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with my colleague Bruce Kelly, BK. And this week we have starting off with a segment with Mark Sheff, the Chefinator, our Washington, D.C. correspondent who knows everything that's going on down there up there wherever you're from and uh he is going to talk to us about joe biden's first 100 and some days uh what uh he's trying to get through and what he's likely to get through and uh, what the financial advisory community thinks of all this a lot of focus on taxes right jeff well it's joe biden so yes there will be
1: taxes yes (laughs) mark how you doing Hey, Jeff. Just fine. Bruce, how are you? I'm good, Sheffy. Thanks for dropping
2: on by. We always love Uh, it.
1: Thank you for the invitation. You guys do a terrific podcast. I listen every week, and I'm not just pumping up colleagues. Oh, come on. Please, now. Come on. You guys do a fantastic job, and your your guest guests are just tremendous. In fact, I feel like I'm letting down the side here today because I'm one of the (laughs) lowest profile guests you've had in several weeks.
0: Say that about yourself, Sheffy. We call you sure Yeah. All right. Get get to the stuff that people are listening for. Come on. Uh, we you you got you all a story those big on taxes,
2: Mark? Yeah. Right? You got a cover story on taxes
0: coming up. I did.
1: Up. Uh, yes, my cover story on on Biden tax proposals is published today, uh, Monday, when this podcast is yep. posted. And uh, what I did was ask advisors what their telling their clients about how to prepare for potential tax increases during the Biden administration. I chose this cover story a few weeks ago, and it was just sort of luck that it became a moving target when I was putting it together because I was writing it just as President Biden gave his address to the joint session of Congress on April 28th. And in that speech, he outlined his American Families Plan, which is one of his big uh, proposals. This one would uh, spend 1.8 billion dollars on social programs.
2: Trillion, I think. Trillion, chef. trillion, trillion, trillion. Yeah. trillion. golly! Yeah. Thank you.
1: I yeah. get my beans. We're in the new the me. new
2: age. We're not we're not doing billions anymore in government. We're doing trillions now. Okay.
1: That is that is a <laughs> fatal mistake in Washington. Don't mix up B's and T's because it's usually T. <laughs> 1.9, $1.8 trillion package that he's proposing. And the way that he would pay for it is by raising taxes on high earners. So the tax increases that, that uh, he has in mind that he's pushing include raising the um, individual rate to 39.6% for um, families making more than $400,000 raising the capital gains rate to that ordinary rate plus the Affordable Care Act surcharge for individuals making a million dollars or more annually. And he would also eliminate the step-up basis for um, inheritance of assets so that heirs would have to pay a capital gains tax on appreciation of more than $1 million on those inherited assets. This, these, These are the three main components tax increase components that Biden is proposing to pay for this package. Now, we're a long way from enactment of those proposals. The legislative process will work its will. Biden may not get everything he wants, or he at least may not get the rates that he wants. He may have to compromise. So a lot is up in the air. But even though there's uncertainty, advisors and their clients have made tax planning almost an obsession. Every advisor I talk to says this topic comes up usually at the top of the conversation with clients.
0: Well, that's kind of what financial advisors are supposed to do, though, aren't they? And so I I can understand why it comes up, especially when we're talking this kind of voluminous spending. You mentioned uh, the latest trillion dollar, but combined, Biden has kind of put forth about $6 trillion in spending in his... uh, first hundred right. years in office. I mean, days, sorry.
1: <laughs> There's also the um, American jobs plan, which is infrastructure spending. And then well, the American families plan is sort of social uh, capital spending. And um, those two, let's see, the American jobs plan, I believe is 2.3 trillion or so trillion. I got it right that time, 2.3 yeah. trillion. The American families plan, 1.8 trillion trillion. And then the coronavirus relief package, the American Rescue Plan, which has already been approved and signed into law, was $1.9 trillion earlier this year. And so advisors and their clients are looking at all this, all this spending that's already been approved and the spending that's been being proposed. Mm-hmm. They're also looking at the fact that the 2017 tax reform bill uh, sunsets many tax cuts that were included in that legislation, uh, sunsets them in 2025. So one way or the other, whether Biden gets everything he wants or some of what he wants, given that these tax cuts from 2017 are sunsetting, one way, oh, and, and also given the fact that spending, that the uh, U.S. debt is going up and, and spending and revenue are, are going further apart, they're saying something's got to give and taxes will be going up, so let's plan for them.
0: Yay. What, what do financial advisors think about all this, Mark? I know you've researched that as well.
1: Uh, they're uh, leery of the Biden tax proposals. What's interesting is we commissioned—commissioned uh, commissioned is a strong word—we uh, we put out <laughs> a, a reader's a reader poll. Uh, we like strong year. words. Yeah, uh, <laughs> late last week, asking investment news readers who are largely retail investment advisors and brokers whether they approved of Joe Biden after his first 100 days in office. The 100 days concluded on April 29. And I wrote a story on Monday, May 3rd, where we had some results in that showed that advisors diverge with the rest of public opinion about Biden. Based on our highly unscientific reader poll, we we show that um, about 60% of our readers disapprove of Biden, whereas in a recent Washington Post-ABC News poll, Fifty-two percent did approve of him. Actually, I just pulled up the latest numbers. Sixty-three percent of our readers don't approve of the job right. Biden's doing, and a lot of this has to do with the uh, tax increases that he's proposing that would hit advisors' clients pretty squarely. And so, this is causing some consternation. And what's interesting to me is, I talked to two to advisors for the, the story I wrote about the poll, and the one advisor who does approve of the job Biden's doing. Still had qualms about his tax proposals. She said, "We have to make sure that they don't wind up affecting higher middle income earners." She said she's afraid they could they could actually hit people hit uh, beyond just the uh, the wealthy pool.
0: Yeah, they will. Wealthy will be redefined, but uh, that that gets <laughs> that gets to the fairness issue because I think that uh, Biden. And his counterpart from a while ago, Barack Obama, they had been asked about the fact that in basic economics, if you want more of something, you you subsidize it. And if you want less of something, you tax it. And so I think they all know, I I think, I hope they all know that raising taxes on something is going to reduce the income from those, those channels. But they feel like it's more important to be fair than to be, I guess, fiscally smart. And that's where I think a lot of people have have issues. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, if you think that I don't know, I mean, it's what,
1: a, it's a, what's animating this debate to a large extent is what you just said, Jeff. It's not so much the fiscal policy encompassed in, in uh, tax reform or in tax increases, but it's the message being sent. About the wealthy paying their fair share of taxes. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's exactly way that uh, Biden put it in his joint address to Congress. He he said, uh, "I'm I'm actually have it here somewhere." <laughs> um, you okay, here's what he in, said. Didn't we're, you we're, write we're, Biden's speech, Mark? I thought <laughs> you. No, I just I quoted from it though, and I'm I'm, oh, I'm looking oh. up my story. <laughs> we're going to. Here's what he said. He said, quote, uh, the idea is, quote, reward work, not just wealth, end quote. And he said, quote, we're going to get rid of the loopholes that allow Americans to make more than a million dollars a year and pay a lower tax rate on their capital gains than Americans who receive a paycheck. And he said, we're, we're only going to affect three tenths of one percent of all Americans by that action, end quote. That's how Biden put it in his address. Yeah. So this is about fairness. It's about making sure the wealthy pay what they owe and another part of Biden's proposal is to beef up spending on the IRS so they can do more audits and enforcement of high earners and the wealthy. So uh so this and this this idea of making the wealthy pay their fair share that urge is uh coming It's a for really from the left of the Democratic Party and Biden's sort of channeling Yeah, that.
0: it's a it's definitely a populist bandwagon that he seems to be jumping on there. Right. Without I think acknowledging, I mean, fair share is, is, to me, has become a relative concept because the wealthy pay most of the taxes, but if they want to slice it as you're paying a percentage of your income or a percentage of your wealth, that's where people start to get confused by the numbers and, and buy into that fair share argument. But the thing that I wanted to quickly sidebar on of your, your fumbling of the trillion billion number mark, <laughs> I think- I think I'm serious. I think whoever came up with these million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, and it goes all the way to like Ekaillion or some weird number like that. Is that once they got past a thousand, they started going with these numbers that all sound the same. And I seriously think there's something psychological in there of these numbers all sounding alien, and people can't get their head around the idea of the difference between a million and a billion and a trillion. Six trillion dollars in spending in three months is a truckload of money but
1: here's i would say this jeff and and jeff you and bruce have probably experienced this too on deadline i've filed stories and then thought oh man that did i say did i say million billion or trillion you know did i write (laughs) million billion or trillion because you're on deadline and you're dealing with these numbers and you're putting them in in there and, and filing the story and sometimes I go back in a cold sweat to make sure <laughs> that when I when I wrote one point that I did write one point nine trillion instead of one point nine billion. Wait, one well, point nine million. Are, are ended- you
0: suggesting that Joe Biden might have meant to spend one point nine billion and accidentally <laughs> spent a. Tr- that's news, no, man. I'm oh, saying
1: no. he meant to spend one point nine, one point eight trillion, and I I might have accidentally written one point eight. Mark. Okay, <laughs> but uh, but yes, it is. It's an occupational hazard for, for journalists, and you might be onto something there about the psychology of it, Jeff. Wait, yeah, I'm I, you. Jeff, I would say this too because you're flying the uh, conservative flag this afternoon, which is which is fine. But remember, in 2017, the the um, the republican party was perfectly happy when it controlled the house and senate to pass the 2017 tax reform bill and send it along to president trump for his signature without paying for the 1.5 trillion or so dollars that it added to the deficit so so the republicans are hardly fiscally upright they have abandoned fiscal
0: yeah, I, I think, as I, well. think you could say, I think you could say Congress has abandoned fiscal responsibility. Uh, Congress,
1: but both parties, because the Republicans didn't care a bit about paying for tax reform in 2017. So right, don't but those, that.
0: but that probably generated more tax revenue because that's what tax cuts do.
1: But anyway, well, okay. If, if you harken back to to trickle down economics of so Ronald Reagan, voodoo asked, economics. There you go, so Mark.
0: How far back are we going to go in this defense of Joe Biden's think, taxes? Let's, let's, let's uh, we're, we're, we're discussing them. I don't know if we're defending
2: them or not. Mark, I thought it was interesting. Getting back to this reader poll of you know however many it was a hundred yes. when you wrote your story it was what a hundred responses two hundred responses when I
1: when I wrote the story I think it was about one hundred and ten and now I think we're up to maybe a hundred and almost a hundred and fifty maybe
2: yeah so I th- yeah. that's a pretty decent sample again not scientific as but right. no no poll is scientific because it's based on people just in my opinion but uh, you know ten fifteen years ago that number would have been eighty or ninety percent of the investment news readers. Decrying any notion of taxes being raised, that it's like sixty or sixty three percent now. To me, it's, it's kind of significant because it says I, I think it shows that the the demographic for our audience, which is financial advisors, is trending a little younger and trending a little more left or Dem than it would have been 10 years, 10 or 12 years ago when you joined investment news and 20, 21 years ago when Jeff and I
1: first yes, started here, you know, well, in 2000
2: me- or 2001, you could not have gotten any financial advisor to say, yes, raise taxes.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, my 11th anniversary was April 28th uh, when Biden made his speech to the joint session. Hey, congratulations! Congress. 11 but, but, years
2: in, dude. But kind you of you're still 10 years behind me and the professor. So yeah, i You're halfway know.
1: there, Mark. The first the first 10 years are the toughest I've heard. Yeah, <laughs> but but this debate, the, this debate, going back to what Jeff said earlier, actually it does start with Ronald Reagan in 1980, and Reagan, look, you, you have these these big political moments that set the um, context for the next few decades. So you had FDR, you had FDR with a lot of government spending to, to, to get the new
2: deal, it's cool,
1: pull the country out of the uh, depression with the new deal. And that new deal thinking held sway in the government until really Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. And then all of a sudden, small government and cutting taxes and trickle down economics burst into the forefront with Ronald Reagan in 1980 and it has held sway until right about now and Joe Biden is and now introducing this idea that government spending can be a good thing and and he's trying to show uh, all that um, it it can accomplish in helping lift up low income people and give them better lives and and he and he, he he could be changing the political thought process again but these things run in cycles and Biden may be the beginning of the um, end of the Reagan way of thinking that has uh, influenced uh, people our age Jeff and Bruce Yeah I don't oh, I yeah. don't
0: know but, if if we can kind of pin Biden as the next FDR just yet but I am not saying that but I'm, I well, okay. I do think that and, and this is a topic we will be covering ad nauseum in near Future and and from now on for a while is inflation. That this spending is definitely a precursor to inflation, and that will not help all those people that I think they're proposing to try and help. They will suffer immensely if we get the kind of inflation that this kind of spending is a is is likely to bring. But I mean, we will see. I don't know how that gets well, managed. Janet
1: Janet Yellen stepped on a, a landmine a few days ago when she suggested that that the spending might uh, increase inflation and the Fed would have to step in. And she had to walk that back a, a couple mm-hmm. days later. And yeah, say, the Dow no. dropped
2: she, 300 points, I think.
1: <laughs> right. And then she had to walk it back and say, no, I don't expect inspe- I don't expect inflation to spike. So it's, it's a it's a volatile subject. Uh, Jeff. Yeah.
2: I think something just as a kind of a side note. And Jeff, I know you've written about this. I just was covering some earnings this week, and Rudy Adolf from Focus Financial said that the threat of higher capital gains tax is spurring even more RIA mergers and acquisitions activity because people want to lock in their capital gains at the current rate as opposed to, you know a double rate uh yeah. in, in in the near future. So Jeff, I know you've written about that in the past
0: yeah in addition to that it's also uh spurring more uh more sales to private equity firms because uh that's also something that would be impacted by that that capital gains tax right. rate
2: so so more deal making in the financial services space <laughs> and across well uh, uh, all industries i guess
0: yeah in a in a hurry right because if that you know it, this might be just buying the future though these any and nobody's gonna Decide to sell their firm if they weren't already thinking about it. So they're saying, "Well, of course not," but it just hastens the, you know.
2: Then we'll see
0: what it does. Maybe it will dry things up for a while afterwards. Depending on how these, I mean, like Mark said, there's no guarantee that these capital gains rates are going to go through
2: at that level. Right. And they could all be no, a negotiating point. Right. You always right.
1: look the, 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 the main hey. reason they might not go through, by the way. And Jeff, when we were off air, warned me not to get into the weeds. But I'm sorry, Jeff, I'm going to.
2: He's going the, there, uh, Jeff.
1: <laughs> moderate Democrats are the ones who are going to slow Biden down. Democrats who are leery of raising taxes, especially Democrats who uh, have a House seat in the district that uh, Trump, Donald Trump won in 2020 or senators who are up in 2022 in conservative-leaning states like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, they're the ones who are going to likely, if not stop these tax increases, at least curb them.
0: Yeah. Well, it'll be fun to watch. Always. Not as much fun as talking to you guys, though. Well, yeah, obviously. Come on. Everybody knows that. All right, Bruce, you got anything else for the aider? Nope, that's about it. All right, Mark, thank you very much, and uh, keep up the good work with your finger on the pulse there in Washington. Always remember to wash your hands and keep your mask on and be safe. We'll, We'll see you next
1: time. Thanks, guys. It was great to be here. Thanks, Mark.
0: Hey, folks, one thing we want to remind you of is we are putting together a contest for Advisor Podcast. If you have your own podcast and you want to submit it, It is being co-sponsored by FICOM Partners and Investment News. We're looking for great, interesting entries. I'm one of the judges, so I promise to be fair and impartial and uh, listen to all the good stuff that you send us. Uh, We're looking forward to it. We will put the link in the show notes and uh, get those things sent in, please. Okay, folks, thanks a lot, Mark Chef. Now we're going to talk to... Nico Murray, the Chief Executive Officer of Wells Fargo Asset Management. He's joining us today to, to kind of give us an update on what things have, have transpired since the company was sold to private equity investors a while ago, and uh, what's uh, what's going forward with Wells Fargo. How are you doing, Nico? Thanks for joining us.
3: Yeah, great. I'm doing well, and hope you guys are fine and safe.
0: We're doing great. wanted to start off with the the sale to the private equity owners that was earlier this year, correct? I think February that was announced. That's correct. Yep. What now? That's that's a hundred percent, or I think about ninety-two percent ownership to two private equity firms, correct?
3: That's right, Reverence and GTCR.
0: Right. What is the? I mean, for for those people out there that haven't been acquired by a private equity firm yet. What's different at Wells Fargo from your perspective? Because you've been the CEO there since 2019, and you've been there at Wells Fargo since 2017, correct?
3: That's correct. Yep. So, you know, I I think a number of things are different. And first and foremost, I I think throughout you'll you'll hear the excitement I have on you know on this change. Don't get me wrong, we've had a fantastic time at Wells Fargo, and there were a number of an environment which in many ways really uh, um, helped us build the firm that we have today, but equally being part of a private firm brings you know um, very different advantages the first being the just the ability to execute at speed as you know we're in a you know the asset management industry is changing rapidly, and those that will survive will be the nimble the agile flexible, and the ones that are able to stay relevant it is so much easier you know with these partners to be agile be decisive be focused and and create value for clients it's much quicker and it's faster second point is the the investment in the business we need aggressive investment in the business we're already hiring investing in technology and we have partners are committed to invest pretty aggressively going forward there's often and and i would say a, a misconception around private equity ownership when you look at Reverence and GTCR, and they track record, these are, are firms and individuals that have a long, long-term commitment in, in terms of their investments. And it's not a cost-cutting exercise, right? You don't create value over five to seven years for your clients by simply cutting cost. And I think that's why you know this is such an appealing deal for us. One, they recognize the value of the management team they recognize the value of the, our culture and the focus we have, the strategies we have in place, and we'll talk about those. And they want to invest and strengthen those. So we have a partner that doesn't want to fix us. There's nothing to fix. It's a partner that's excited about where we want to go, and they want to help take us there. And then we have, in, in, in the likes of Colin and Mike and Moulton and Peter, the, you know, the partners, incredible experience. So, so think about an environment where as a CEO, and, and then also Joe Sullivan, the executive chair, where I've been pretty alone in managing a firm. And suddenly I found myself surrounded by experts, people that I can brainstorm with, strategize with. So uh, um, and, and that makes my life incredibly exciting and uh, um, so much easier. So what is a private equity firm? Just to wrap it up, it gives us agility, the ability to execute, feed, capital, and a great trust in culture. You know, culture is non-negotiable mm-hmm. across in terms of diversity, inclusion, and you know these old people that really respect you know the legacy of this firm.
2: Nico, uh, just in terms of reverence, you know they they're the majority owners in a, in a few different financial services companies, right? That have a lot of uh, pertinence to the financial advisor space. They own uh, Advisor Group, right? They own the old Voya Annuities. What is your sense, just from where you are in your group, and you've only been there a couple of weeks, literally, right, like a few weeks? What is Reverence doing, and is there what's the what's the strategy? Why these assets? Why, why now? You know.
3: Well, it, you know what? First of all, it's not just Reverence; it's Reverence and GTCR as a team. Right. So when I all meet right. when I meet with them, I meet with all of them together, and then obviously Joe, who was the, uh, the CEO of Leg Mason. The, when you look at the philosophy that these guys have, they've always bet on management. They, you know that's part of their strategy and, and actually you know you could look at a website. they really look for firms where they see incredibly strong management, vision and leadership and they back them and, and drive them. They've always felt that with such management in place and when you provide support, guidance, capital, the outcome is, is positive and significant and they've proved it and i think that's again why I'm excited about it they're not there to fix us they are there to really in this environment uh, um help us build a a quality solutions driven firm so that's the that's the that's where we start right they could uh, you know we would together look at the best ways to execute Where's the best you know the best uh, use of of additional capital where do we recruit what are the things we're really going to focus on so i found a in, and and I, and I view me and the management team and Wells Fargo asset management incredibly fortunate to have these type of private equity investors that are truly focused on unlocking the value of this firm and and we'll talk about what what exactly that means. Thanks yes.
0: yeah, Nico, that's something I did want to ask you about what that means is is by the latest report that I saw, Wells Fargo has over six hundred billion under management. Is that close? That's correct, yep okay. And from what I can tell, you haven't delved into the ETF space yet. And I apologize if something's been filed since I last saw this. But I'm sure you know better than I do the the pace of money and the direction of money in the asset management space. And, and it has been for more than a decade now migrating away from mutual funds and into ETFs. But but Wells Fargo is not in the ETF space yet. Is there a plan or is there a strategy or is there a reason Wells Fargo has not gone in that direction yet?
3: So You know what? Um, you know. We, we look at ETFs as part of a, one of our uh, pillars of growth is um, are we relevant? Are we relevant to millennials? Are we relevant to baby boomers? Are we relevant in income? And then are we relevant in the vehicles that we offer our clients? And I do think that it's a fact that we're behind the curve on, on uh, ETFs. Um, But the view that we have is is the following. It makes no sense for us to just launch a broad range of ETFs and hope someone would invest in them. Remember an ETF is only a vehicle, not a value proposition. And and I think that the market's often confused. However, for us to have a choice of vehicle for the products that are truly popular Starting with a mutual fund, CIT, SMA, or an ESG is a very different uh, value proposition. I want you as investor to have access to us in the vehicle of your choice. So we're following a slightly different route is thinking about where are those areas where our clients would go, Nico, we love your strategy. Can we have access through an ETF versus let's l- launch a platform of 20 ETFs and you know, two years later, you have 10 million in each. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but it's a very different strategic approach to ETFs. ETFs in their own right mean nothing. They are a super comfortable vehicle and, and you have to offer them to your clients and obviously looking very carefully in order to, uh, to make sure that they could access you the way they want. And, and, and an additional and interesting point is it's not only ETFs, it's tremendous growth in CITs and then SMAs. I'm not sure the market has fully woken up to the power of SMAs. We're the fourth largest provider of SMAs in the U.S. It's an incredible position to be in and, you know, in many ways, the vehicle of choice or the solution of choice for advisors. So, yes, we've got to make sure we can provide vehicles, you know, including ETFs, but are we are equally going to drive? You know, we've got scale and it's a very important part of, uh, of being relevant in the vehicles you offer your clients.
0: Yeah, uh, obviously, SMA is a fast growing and very popular area for financial advisors, which is primarily our audience. Now that you're separate from the Wells Fargo mothership, which is obviously a long and storied brand, is there any consideration there of uh, renaming the wealth management business or is that going to stay as is?
3: No so uh, you know we, we we haven't closed yet so we we've, we've signed the deal and we're going through the transition period extracting ourselves from Wells Fargo and hopefully by Q3 we'll be formally extracted yes we are we will be having a, you know uh, adopting a new name and brand and it's a very exciting and fun event for the firm i say that sort of in jest but we will be engaging the entire firm to come up with ideas on brand you know refresh of our vision our mission and if you have 1,600 people, I'm sure they'll come up with 1,200 names. And at some point, we'll have to pull them apart and, and decide. But I do think the this is a fun part. This is a fun part of the you know the the transition. We've taken it very serious, and it needs to whatever we come up needs to represent our legacy, what we stand for. So a, a lot of time is being spent to come up with uh, you know with an identity that will resonate with our advisors. And, but it's really, you know, it's really been a, a, a very pleasurable part of the, uh, you know, sort of the separation exercise. Yes, we will have a new brand pretty soon.
0: All right. Well, looking forward to hearing more about that. The final question that I had for you, I don't know, Bruce might have more, but um, I wanted to ask you about the, the Wells Fargo's working from home or remote work status at this point. A lot of companies are starting to reopen with vaccines out there now. And, uh I'm just wondering where you where where Wells Fargo Asset Management is. Do you have kind of a skeleton crew there now, and you're migrating in? I don't know what's uh, what's things like
3: there. You know, I, I'll I'll put that in. You know, uh, I'll tell you where we are, but you've got to frame it within, you know, just the culture of the firm, right? The the importance we place on diversity, inclusion, mental health. More than sixty percent of my management team is diverse. I'm not sure if people know that. It's a very modern firm in a very cool place. So naturally, we will gravitate towards what is the most attractive arrangement for our people. We're a capital business. I want them to be, capi- you know, to be happy and productive. In the reviews that we've had with well, our people, there's a strong preference for a number of attributes going forward. People like the flexibility they have right now, and I think that's a great idea. Flexibility in being at home, flexibility being in the office. Secondly people miss the social dynamics of being in the office and they would like to uh, be part of uh, you know that environment going forward thirdly people are still afraid and don't want to be put in a position where they are forced you know to be in a in an elevator if that's not a choice or be on a train and i respect that so we will have a hybrid model that's modern flexible and really representative views of our people and again i think that's exciting i do you know we're not going to force people to back, be back in the office. You know, Last year was a record year for us working from home. So I'm very proud of the team and their ability to, uh, to execute wherever they are. So a hybrid model it would be you know, what we will adopt going forward. Okay.
0: Bruce, do you have anything else for, uh, for Nico?
2: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, Nico, I just wanted to ask you one question or ask you to talk about one, one topic that kind of struck me when Jeff and I, on the podcast back in February. When the deal was announced for Wells Fargo uh, asset management. And I think it was the, the price tag was $2.1 billion for the 600, roughly 600 or 602 billion in assets, right? That's correct. So, you know, I follow the publicly traded brokerage firms and the RIAs. And what struck me was that if you look at, for example, the market cap for Focus Financial, which is an RIA acquisition machine i'm sure you're familiar with them they have 250 billion in assets something like that maybe 300 billion in assets but they're valued higher right they have a market cap of around 3.3 or 3.4 billion so it just it struck me at the time that the premium is on advice the premium in price rather and then also the actively managed mutual fund business has been facing downward pressure on fees so, where do you see the well, the premiums on advice? It seems there's downward pressure on fees. What, where does that leave you guys as you rebrand and rethink, you know, and retool maybe with ETFs going forward and the value of the products that you have?
3: I think that's a great question. You know, I cannot comment on the actual price, right? I, I wasn't involved in, in the negotiations, sure. but I I can give you my perspective. You know, and, and and I've always been saying that even to the rating agencies and to investors. I view Wells Fargo asset managers one of the best kept secrets or a diamond in the rough that no one has fully <laughs> realized the incredible value.
2: Well, you run it, Nico, so of course, you know. <laughs>
3: um, but let me let me let me give you my, you know, and, and I even remember when I joined them for But you there's downward go, uh, pressure
2: uh, on fees on businesses like yours though, right?
3: Yeah, yes, they they're downward pressure, but think about margins are still very healthy with incredibly scalable platform you could run a business that is you know, very profitable and grow. People talk about scale. What they, here are the, a number of things that people don't realize about Wells Fargo Asset Management. We have one of the richest, the deepest legacies of innovation in the industry. One of the first to start an index fund. One of the first to start targeted funds. One of the first to start a low vol. We have patent pending innovations in pre and post retirement. One of the first in sustainable munis. Can you imagine you know how that culture that you don't get from nowhere it's deep in the firm now in a private environment how quickly we you know would build on you know this uh, in a culture of innovation that i i can assure you don't find everywhere secondly you know there's perhaps sometimes a misconception about scale we are the second largest provider of stable value funds the fourth largest provider of smas which as you say in advice space is exactly where you wanna be to really open the door in terms of a relationship with clients. So on advice, we're very powerful. We're one of the biggest. We've moved to the, I think now the seven or eighth largest in, in money market space. We're in the top 10 on, on, on fixed income. So we have tremendous scale combined with, you know, that culture of innovation and then the firepower of the, of the private equity guys to execute and add value. Yes, you you do have. A, a, let me talk specifically about uh, uh, pressures, pressure and fees. Alpha is scarce. In you know, a consistent, repeatable alpha um, is is not easy to deliver, and those that can get paid handsomely in this industry. The rest of the industries' products are becoming commoditized, and you know, and and that's a reality. But as a solutions-driven firm, and we haven't really spoken about what that means. Having the ability not only to generate alpha in a quality way, but add and combine building blocks in, in, you know, to deliver outcomes on wealth preservation or income or retirement puts me in a position where I, am, I don't want to lock and I'm not going to lock myself into a, being a commodity provider uh, where the fees are going down, but that value added solutions provider that use them to get you what you want. And so, yes, we have the fee pressure. I respond to it by the investment in my technology and operations. But secondly, by using the building blocks or commodities in the industry in a way to add value, I'll give you one practical example. Clients are clamoring for income. How do you provide consistent income? How do I you know, build a product that uh, um, provides income a little bit more than dividend income with downside risk protection? I do it by combining a number of building blocks, and it is super attractive. But I haven't locked myself into a single component, so I'm very comfortable that you know we will have to work harder than anyone else to counter pressure. But it's embedded in your operational infrastructure and the you know the the vision that you have for the firm.
2: Well, it sort of seems like you're you're aware of it. <laughs> that's I that's that's I one do, of the I things I'm taking day. away
3: from the from those <laughs> comments.
2: You're aware of it. Every stepping day, into this day. private company role how does that work you know it's it, etc i think that's fascinating thank you
0: exactly hey uh, nico i just had I, I i said my last question was a minute ago but i lied i have one more for you um we uh we really enjoy having you on here and uh i'd like to have you on here again uh you know down the road once you've seen some uh, once you are fully you know, once the change or, some changes
2: have been you know yeah made and the like yeah.
0: but uh you're you're a big shot over there at Wells Fargo, and I'm asking you now: Are are you going to be accessible to uh, to investment news when going forward? When we have stories and we we want to say, hey, uh, let's see what Wells Fargo is doing along those lines, or we need a comment from uh, from a big asset manager? Uh, you're, are you uh, are you still going to talk to us, little guys?
3: You know, I I always uh, uh, get nervous when people start telling you how good you are and then they ask you for something. (laughs) But you know what? (laughs) I'm busted. um, (sighs) I can assure you, I don't feel big. I feel committed, but I certainly don't feel big. But uh, I would, of course, I want to talk to you. You know what? I'm unbelievably excited about this firm. So is everybody around me. And if there's an opportunity to share what a cool place this is, and it's on fire and it's committed. Um, of course, it's a, it's it's such a exciting thing to share. As I've told you before, I don't think people realize, you know, the firepower and the um and the commitment and the excitement that this firm brings. Now it's our responsibility to unlock it and make sure it, that we deliver for clients, for our advisors. We've just launched a platform, I'm not sure if you know it, called Remy on the SMA side. Incredible platform, you know, and and I think state of the art. So there's so much happening. So I would love to share this with you. Not because I think I'm big, just because I think we're we committed to to deliver to advisors. End of story.
0: All right. Well, you you can always bring us your news exclusively to Investment News, and we'll make a big deal out of it, OK? <laughs> Thanks, Nico. That's
3: Great. Thanks, guys. Have a nice day. You too.
2: All right. That was another big episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Nico Moray the CEO of Wells Fargo Asset Management and Investment News' very own Mark Sheff. Of course, we want to thank Mr. Stephen Lamb, our producer. You can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on Apple and follow us on Spotify. Reach out to Jeff at, uh, on Twitter at Benji Wright or me. I'm at guy. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week.